0: the pittsburgh oddcast welcome everybody once again to the pittsburgh oddcast my name is andrew Lindbergh. i'm the producer of the program and with me as always is mr odd himself john Chelkowski.
1: well hello everybody so uh thank you for tuning in today and we have a very very special guest with us that and none other than the legend rick siebeck
2: thank you thank you very much that's enough we can Go on with everything else now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: so
0: No more praise. No right. more praise.
1: We have a cool show for you today. Sometimes when you're when you're researching stories, you come across something by accident. And I've collected a lot of these strange articles over time and we're kinda kinda read verbatim with the Post Gazette or the Press or the Daily Post or I don't know how many, how many Pittsburgh newspapers were there, do you think?
2: I have no idea.
1: 30, 30, there were a lot. 40. There were a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So there's a lot of Pittsburgh newspapers.
2: We're going to just kind of
1: go around the room here and uh, talk some Pittsburgh new, odd news for you. We'll begin uh, with Rick here. He's got a true story. So we all know that in 1891, right? The Pittsburgh pirates got their name, but there's something else about the pirates name that most people might not know. And that's what this article from 1891
2: talks about. It's from the Pittsburgh Press, October 24th, 1891. Three more captured. The detectives run down the Monongahela River pirates. Three more alleged river pilots were captured early this morning. The police have been working on the case for months and are now confident that the gang has been broken up completely, (laughs) putting an end to any further loss and inconvenience to the manufacturers along the banks of the Monongahela River. For nearly a year, the gang has been plundering the mills on both sides of the river, and so skillfully that neither the owners nor the police could get any clue to the thieves. The robberies were carried on so systematically that the manufacturers were aroused and held conferences <laughs> to devise means of detecting the criminals. They were aroused. We think that differently now. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. They're pirates and... Uh... How crazy is that, that
1: there was actual pirates? Yeah,
2: but, you know, were they really pirates if they were, like, stealing things along the rivers? They weren't, like, attacking other boats. Well,
1: let's hope they were uh, some renegade canoes. They were, they were stealing things from <laughs> yeah.
2: manufacturers along the banks of the Mon. So, I oh. don't you know, it could be glass, steel, all kinds of things going on along Who knows?
1: The Who knows? That's fascinating. Here's one uh from the Pittsburgh Gazette, December 22nd, 1789. I mean, this is three years after the Post-Gazette was founded. It was founded in 1786. It's an ad by Dennis O'Brien that he put it in the paper, and it says, July the 27th day, my wife, Betty, ran away. From bed and board did she and say she would no longer with me stay. Since she has left me without cause, I give her time enough to pause that she may see her heir when I live happy with a fairer. Therefore, I warn, both great and small, to trust her anything at all. For her contracts from this day, not one farthing will I pay. you don't see usually poem or poetry in the early, uh early 1780s newspaper advertisements for a divorce.
2: <laughs> but, right. You know, That's good, though.
1: Yeah, I'd be not so upset, you know, if someone divorced me that way. I <laughs> so, yeah, need we'll, to
0: call uh, Cordell and Cordell.
2: <laughs> sounds like he has somebody lined up already, though. So. <laughs> but, fairer. Yeah, it's true.
0: This is an article from 1925.
2: The Pittsburgh Press.
0: Pet dog saves six families from fire but loses own life. This happened on February 27th, 1925. A pet dog was the hero of a fire which early today destroyed the undertaking establishment of George F. Hackis, a two-story brick building in Carnegie. The dog aroused the six occupants of the house in time to escape from the burning building but perished in the flames although Hackus made a futile attempt to rescue the animal. The damage was established at $51,000. Firemen removed the body of a Carnegie resident from the mortuary where it had been taken to be prepared for burial today. They failed, however, to rescue the mummified body of a woman that had been kept in the mortuary by the undertaker for 15 years.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the
1: kicker. That's the only reason why I printed that out. What? <laughs> you know, listen, look at the headline. The headline's like, family dog dies in fire. Fifteen years as a mummified woman in the basement of this, this mortuary. What? up came together. No explanation. Well, <laughs> just... maybe
0: that, you know, a convenience store saves their first dollar. They uh, <laughs> save their first body. <laughs>
2: Nobody's going to pay for it. Maybe they just left her there. Yeah. Know? I guess. You know, maybe there wasn't a potter's field to throw her in or something. It... This but,
0: could be, you know, maybe it was the model. This could be you. <laughs> Rick, so, what do you have? What do
1: we
2: got next? This is from the Post-Gazette in 1914. Bearded Lady hides money in whiskers and thereby foils a Millvale mob which storms Carnival in an attempt to steal a bag of cash. A riot marked the close of the Carnival in Millvale Saturday midnight when a mob surrounded the Bearded Lady and attempted to rob her of the day's receipts which she had concealed beneath her whiskers. (laughs) The Bearded Lady had the money in a bag tied around her neck and as she was leaving the Carnival grounds A mob surrounded her, and one man attempted to snatch the bag containing the money. The woman screamed, and her husband, who was nearby, ran to her side, flourishing a revolver. He fired into the air, and the crowd scattered. By that time, Chief of Police William Walker and several policemen were on the scene. As they were escorting the bearded lady and her husband to a car, one of the crowd yelled, Let's shoot the cop! Chief Walker charged the mob and arrested George Barry, 14 years old, 137 Home Street. He started to the lockup with the boy and the crowd followed. Chief Walker turned the prisoner over to a policeman and held the crowd at bay, while the boy and the policeman hid in an alley. The crowd stormed the lockup and stones were thrown through the windows. At a hearing yesterday morning before Justice of the Peace James McGinley, Barry was fined $5 with an option of spending five days in jail. When Barry was taken to the jail, he was refused admittance because of his age. He was released by the police. Those Crazy. 14-year-olds. 14-year-old bearded, what, bearded ladies. <laughs> I like the way they think. It's, it's like a little gang of kids, probably. Mob. <laughs> the
1: yeah. The Millvale Mob. The yeah. Millvale Mob. The Millville mob. <laughs> Here's a great one from uh, 1903. The Hearst team runs away. The collision results with another funeral, and one man is now hurt. In a runaway accident in Allegheny City yesterday afternoon, two hearses were demolished and one man injured. The accident occurred shortly before 4 o'clock in the afternoon at Allegheny Avenue in Locust Street. It was the cause by a team attached to a horse bearing the body of Thomas McRae, late of Westview, scaring at a locomotive and running away. The McRae funeral was coming along Chartier Street when near the junction of Locust Street, another team attached to the driver of Samuel Peebles could get the team under control. The horses have reached Locust Street, and at this time the funeral of Herman Lautner now was coming along locust street at the corner a runaway team and the one of the drawing the hearse containing the body of mr lautner came together the vehicle driven by peebles had its wheel torn off and peebles was thrown into the street (laughs) and his left wrist was broken and then cut above his head the hearse containing the body of mr lautner was not so badly damaged but the glass was now broken when the body of the driver hearse containing the body of mr lautner saw a collision was inevitable he tried to avoid it and backed into a carriage containing four of the mourners. This carriage was upset, but none of the occupants was injured. One woman fainted. Both
2: funerals were delayed. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. Both bodies if, were taken to a funeral yeah, home where they were forgotten for 15 years. <laughs> think about that, you know. And then someone's
1: casket goes flying down Locust Street, you know. Collision of hor- hearses. What are the
0: odds of a hearse being in an accident with another hearse? It's kind of nice though. Yeah, that's yeah I know. That's... this is uh, entitled one cent reward and it's from december 14th 1813 run away from the subscribers and an apprentice to the tailoring business name george evans it's all in caps had on when he went away a blue coaty and a pair of velvet pantaloons he is a promising youth for the penitentiary for he is addicted to lying stealing and drinking Whoever takes up the said apprentice shall have the above reward and 30 lashes.
1: Yeah, I love that ad. He's like, here's a guy. He's best known for drinking, stealing, doing whatever. Uh, If you find him, here's a one-cent reward. (laughs) That's how much they did not like this guy. It's crazy they just put that in the papers. I mean, it shows you how much little news, I guess, was going on. We got another one here. Uh, Hermit looks into a mirror and faints. This is from 1911 Pittsburgh Press. Jacob Steinman, aged 85 years, who lives in the woods near Wexford, several miles from Perrysville Pike, saw himself for the first time in a mirror yesterday. It is said that he fainted. Steinman, who has never seen a trolley car but only once, was induced by an autoist to take a ride. During the ride to the old White Horse Tavern was encountered. The hermit was persuaded to taste beer for the very first time. 85-year-old hermit. While standing at the bar, Steinman saw himself in the mirror. Great Scott! he exclaimed. That could not be me! I must have changed since I saw I saw myself in a fishing pool when I was a little boy. It can't be me. Then he collapsed. It was said that he might come to Pittsburgh to be shaved.
2: <laughs> uh, so quite, a, quite, quite a set of whiskers. Yeah. This is from 1953, mm-hmm. uh, the year I was born. Lucky year. It's a lucky year, right? I don't know. Is it? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> Friday the 13th, Club Defies Bad Luck and Black Cats. This is an Associated Press story, but it's uh, lined Pittsburgh, November 13th, Friday, the 13th, once again, called together a group of 14 business, uh, Pittsburgh businessmen who poke fun at persons who believe the day brings bad luck. The Friday, the 13th club of Pittsburgh meets for luncheon today. And the program calls for entering the dining room by walking under a ladder, sitting beneath open umbrellas, the tables decorated with black cats, throwing salt on the floor, breaking mirrors, And paying for meals with $2 bills. (laughs) The club was formed a few years ago. Its officers are 13 vice presidents and a vice president in charge of vice presidents. (laughs) So that's kind of fun. I mean, I going to say, why do they have 14 people? (laughs) (laughs) Afraid to have 13 would be done lucky. Right. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Santa Claus drops dead as 100 children await him. (laughs) (laughs) This is from 1937. Now, just to preface this, I'm reading what it says. Some of this verbiage may not
2: be be
0: the preferred nomenclature of our time. (laughs) A hundred crippled children sang (laughs) jingle bells over and over and chanted, We want Santa! at the Christmas party at the East Liberty YMCA last night, but Santa never got there. Unknown to the children, he dropped dead beside his pack of toys in an adjoined room as he donned his flowing whiskers. The boys and girls from the Industrial Home for the Crippled children were told after a half-hour wait that Santa was unavoidably delayed and accepted their gifts from the party chairman. Santa was Peter P. Dolata, 51, a telephone company employee who lived at the Y. He had been selected for the role because of his round red cheeks, his physical build, and his twinkling eyes. First, he had attended a banquet with the children and laughed with them at a show stage by a federal theater unit. Then came time for the distribution of presents. While the children sang and clapped their hands in anticipation, Mr. Delotta slipped out of side door into the next room. He put on his ermy cap and his big red coat. He affixed his long beard. He struggled into his red trousers. Then he fell dead. He had died from a cerebral hemorrhage. Lucian Wilson, assistant secretary at the Y, sent word to the assembly room. Another resident, John Hoop, stepped up to the platform. Boys and girls, he said. We have just got a long-distance telephone call from Santa. He said he was sorry to disappoint you, but he's very busy tonight. And said he would probably be very late getting here, and for you not to wait for him this time. So the children lined up, passed under the tree, at one corner of the room, and received their gifts.
1: What is, is Santa secretly, look, look this way at the tree, everybody. Just look at the tree, as they sneak the guy out the back door. <laughs> <So>
2: <laughs> you know? That must be at the Ace Hotel. Yeah, I guess it would be. How about the the about East that? Liberty YMCA is now the Ace yeah. Hotel. Wow. They should know this story. Santa <laughs> died there. <laughs> yeah. Not
0: the real one, though, kids. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Real one the still imposter. Was... What a headline. Yeah, what a headline. Huh? <laughs> Santa, Santa died. That's yeah. make Santa sure. dead. It's never good whenever the first words are 100 crippled children <laughs> sang jingle bells over and over again. Here's a
1: great one. Uh, <clears throat> this is from 1894. And um, unbeknownst to me. There seem to have been witch doctors in the city of Pittsburgh. Now, um I guess you would call those witch doctors today uh, herbalists. This is essentially what they, they were. were. Therapists. Therapists. <laughs> <laughs> right. Henry Imhoff was one of these men, and the title of this article from 1894 is A Butchel of Bats. Imhoff buys them and refuses to pay. Henry Imhoff, a resident of the 19th Ward of the City, who gained considerable publicity in the papers through his alleged mesmeric powers, was arrested yesterday on the charge of assault and battery made by George Rea, a farmer living near Hillside in the Pennsylvania Railroad. He was arrested by Constable Walker of Derry, who told the following story. About two weeks ago, Imhoff went to Mr. Rea's farm and told him that he wanted a bushel of live bats and said he would pay about $2 for them. A farm hand took up his offer. Inside of about 10 days, the bats were secured from a nearby cave, and Imhoff was notified it. He went after them, but was not satisfied with them for some reason, and he refused to pay the money. Hot words were passed between him and Mr. Ray, and Imhoff then, is alleged, struck him with the bag of bats. What the defendant wanted with the bats is not known, and he refused to say anything about it. An old friend of his says he was seen last night uh, claimed that Imhoff used him in his practicing of witchcraft.
0: A bag of bats. A
1: bag of bats. A bushel of bats. A bushel. I was
0: confused at the beginning because of the uh going to the farmer. I don't know if there's any bat farmers. But then I, <laughs> they had to go to the cave. No, I just thought farmer. how
2: hard it would be to get bats into a basket. Yeah. I mean, you know. And then, and then you do all that hard work. And then, I don't know if you're in the dark. Are they skittish? I mean, can you just catch one in your hand? I know they sleep for... Or do you throw, like, a net over them? That must be the most... Easiest way. Easiest way to get them. And all that hard work just to be beaten with the <laughs> back of bats. It couldn't hurt that much though, could it? A bite, a bat, it could bite you. If a beaten. vampire bite, a bat could bite you and you would be a vampire. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this one is called His Hat Came Back. Uh, it's from the Pittsburgh Chronicle Telegraph, July 3rd, 1894. And, uh, it goes like this. There is a tale of a hat connected with last evening's windstorm in Allegheny, which, notwithstanding all opinions to the contrary, can be vouched for by half a dozen eyewitnesses. A prominent Alleghenian was taking a drive on Perrysville Avenue with several members of his family, and started home shortly before the storm broke loose. A good part of the distance had been covered when, on reaching a point on the avenue where a street branches off to the north "'The wind carried his straw hat up the side of the hill. "'In the blinding dust storm which followed, "'he thought it was useless to try to recover the hat. "'Another eighth of a mile was covered, "'and the occupants of the carriage took refuge in a residence. "'All were gathered on the porch in the front of the house, "'watching the progress of the storm, "'when what should come flying (laughs) down the street "'but the missing hat, "'urged merrily along by the wind? "'It sailed past, struck an opposing current of air, and, wheeling about, paused for a moment in front of the residence, where it was recovered by the owner and found to be uninjured, save for the dust gathered upon during its flight. It's one of my favorite stories. That's very funny, and it's nicely written, too. Yeah, yeah, I love
1: it. Uh, notwithstanding, to the contrary. <laughs> all opinions to the contrary.
0: I do love the way that they, they wrote. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the
1: best, best thing when you're reading some of these older newspaper articles. Here's a, uh.
0: You just told a tale of a guy that lost his hat and then got it back. Yeah. All because of the
1: wind. Here's one about Mos Mono, uh, Josh making Santa Claus a legal entity. It's Allegheny County. Santa Claus is considered a legal and real entity. Like that it really, uh, exists.
2: He died in the Ace Hotel.
1: Well, there you go. (laughs) So we got this weird connection. (laughs) The title of this one is Be Gone Scoffers. Judge Stamps OK on Santa Claus. There is a Santa Claus. Judge Michael M. Masmano in quarter sessions rolled uh, rolled today in passing upon the legality and authenticity of Santa Claus. After considering the evidence and recounting the premise, Judge Masmano's opinion was the following. Santa Claus is a reality recognizable by the law, and he will be protected by this court against all aspirations and insinuations to the contrary. In, if the law recognizes John Doe, it will certainly respect Santa Claus. And this court can state with judicial correctness that it has seen Santa Claus and it has never been had any ocular obs- observation of a John Doe, pointing out in this opinion was during the past month, several requests have been made to the court for a judicial pronouncement on the legal status of Santa Claus. Judge once again stated, there have been some suggestions to the effect of the white-bearded gentlemen, with their fur-trimmed red suits who stand on downtown streets with beaming smiles and bulging sacks on their backs and, <laughs> and deceiving the public in that they purport to represent the personage that does not exist. In ruling, then, I proclaim, one, that there are many famous and celebrated characters who are just as real to us in the flesh and blood of people of our daily contacts, and yet they have not come within range of our physical vision. Has anybody ever seen Jack Frost? But who can deny the existence of Jack Frost, who takes a green force and converts it into a dazzling riot of color, who in the wintry morning etches fairy castles and prancing silver steeds on a window pane? Two, has anyone clapped eyes on Uncle Sam? Who dares say that he is not a factuality? Uncle Sam, who wears his hat and stars in the heavens, who adorns his clothing with the red sacrifice of martyrs and the white of purity and our nation's ideals and the blue of the devotion of its citizens. Santa Claus, therefore, then, is a reality, George Mossmano concluded. He stands not only in front of the department stores, but he is in every home and is sitting with the children on his knee before the crackling fireplace, chuckling with self-satisfied facility. Felicity, as he surveys the plenty of today and the promise of tomorrow. Santa Claus is not a figment of the imagination. He is an actuality, and he does not live alone for the children. In fact, the adults derive even more soul-fulfilling ecstasy from the amiable and copulent gentlemen than do the kiddies. Thus, after considering all the evidence in this case, which is made up of the testimony of the Sessions, the attizations of the human heart, the exhibits presented by Mother Nature, and after listening to the rosy-cheeked laughter of all of December winds laden with glittering snow, we conclude and find that Santa Claus is real. We find further that without him, life would be dull and cheerless. Signed, Judge Michael Mossmano.
0: He died two days later at the East Liberty YMCA.
2: (laughs) This is probably because so many of those children who are still singing Jingle Bells (laughs) filed suit against Santa for breach of contract because he didn't show up. Santa said he was coming and then he never showed up. This is Charles F. Danver, and this is uh, called Pittsburgh-esque. It's uh, 1928. Uh, Which paper? Do you know which paper he wrote for? This is Pittsburgh Press. The Pittsburgh Press. Okay. So this is the spaghetti joint. No census of the spaghetti eaters in Pittsburgh has yet been taken. But it is probable that the followers of this engaging Latin sport quite outnumber the chop-suey addicts and the inveterate gurglers of oysters on the half. (laughs) The spaghetti joints are now scattered throughout the town and are urban institutions no less than the jazz palaces and the corner speakeasies. Indeed, spaghetti eating is more often than not a feature of the entertainment in these other establishments. As long and intricate as the tangled strings themselves is the spaghetti trail in Pittsburgh. It leads from one side of the village to the other and back again, from the north side to the south side and then to the hill district, which, after all, may be rightly termed spaghetti's native habitat. Washington Street had its spaghetti row. Box-like restaurants lined up one after the other, each boasting the best in town. Other streets have their share. Every dark nook and crevice may be a spaghetti joint in disguise. This popular dish is served upstairs dining rooms of buildings, which turn out to be no stables after all, and in tiny cellars rigged up with a table or two. Then there are innumerable eating rooms in private homes, whose cooking is not advertised perhaps because the delectability of the spaghetti dished up behind the curtain windows is dependent somewhat on the dark red wine which is poured out in bubbling disregard of prohibition laws. (laughs) These places are hard to find unless one knows where to look for them. So far as this Pittsburgh-esque is concerned, the spaghetti trail ends at a place in the Hill District, from which the outside looks like an abandoned stable. Upstairs, though, there are neat little dining rooms connecting a few white-covered Tables each shaded lights and a mechanical orchestra that gains its inspiration from nickels dropped in a slot The spaghetti is delicious When it has been served by the young waiter The chef strolls into the dining room in his white apron and cap and catches the eaters and Watches the eaters to see if they are strangers how they take to his cooking The young waiter instead of saying coffee When he has brought the spaghetti makes this astonishing inquiry What are you going to have to drink? He smiles pityingly at the answer he gets and goes away to bring the coffee. Among the spaghetti eaters are a number of young women. They dance the Charleston to the music of the mechanical orchestra, and they smoke cigarettes. One of them is interesting. She says to her companion, That was a dirty trick to do, to stick up that old man. All he had was five bucks. He didn't pick up on some... He'd... Why didn't he pick up something else? Maybe the old guy needed it to buy beans or something. In a spaghetti joint, there were interesting things to see and hear. One time there was a crew of rum runners who, dirty and unshaven, had just come in back from a trip and had piled up right away to do away with generous platters of spaghetti. While they ate, they talked about the adventures of their trip. There is one general topic of conversation in all of Pittsburgh's spaghetti joints, though, including the Hill District place that might be mistaken for a stable. The diners tell of the different spots in the city where they have sought good spaghetti. That's great. A lot of spaghetti. Yeah. I'm a spaghetti eater. I'm a proud spaghetti eater.
0: <laughs> it was part of that. Sounded like I was listening to one of your documentaries. <laughs> yeah. This Charles Danver have not
2: yet taken a uh, survey of spaghetti eaters <laughs> in this area. Charles Danver, man, he was the man. I could um, do a spaghetti show. The
1: spaghetti would be great.
0: Red sauce. Red sauce in the red bird. sauce is good. The spaghetti incident. Oh wait, that's a <laughs> That's a Guns N' Roses album.
1: <laughs> this is a uh, a great little tale about a dog who like to eat money.
0: This is from 1908. Money eating Teddy becomes the wonder dog of Pittsburgh. Has swallowed nineteen dollars and seventy three cents in coins and is now so fastidious in his taste that he scorns pennies and demands nickels, dimes, or gold pieces. Drawn from Mary of Freeport Street, Etna has a money-eating dog which promises to outrival that Western young woman who has broken into print by swallowing a diamond which refuses to be disgorged. After a tedious half hour over several columns of figures last evening, Framari accounted that according to careful calculation, his dog has up-to-date accumulated $19.73 in his insides. Teddy, who is a bull terrier, is not in the least handsome. First attracted general attention by getting outside of a $10 gold piece. But Mary discovered the dog's passion for money when he happened to drop a silver coin on the floor. Before he could recover it, Teddy had snapped it up. Telling a friend about the incident a few days later, the latter remarked, Let's see if he'll take this, and he tossed a $10 gold piece on the floor. The coin had scarcely hit the floor before Teddy had it. When the owner of the gold coin pleaded for its return, Teddy bestowed a cold glance in his direction. The fame of the Bull Terrier spread, and many tried the experiment of tempting Teddy with coins of various denominations. They all lost money on it. Recently, Teddy has disdained to touch pennies. Its nickels are better or nothing. The dog almost choked on a silver dollar Saturday night.
1: What a random article. <laughs> you know?
0: The wonder dog of Pittsburgh.
2: <laughs> Eats. I assume he poops them out. Yeah, I guess. Someone following <laughs> him around looking for those gold coins. <laughs> yeah. That's what started people picking up their dog's poop. <laughs> Hoping there was gold in it.
1: <laughs> this one is for the Pittsburgh Press again. This is from nineteen twenty six and this uh title is Hashish as a public menace. Uh JM writes your recent article on marijuana or hashish was indeed very interesting to one who has had several months been associated with this new drug. (laughs) Its usage is more widespread than you might imagine. Here in Pittsburgh, I can vouch for at least a dozen habitual addicts and presume that there are many times that number actually using it. Most of its users are numbered among the musicians, or cake eaters, or petty criminal classes. Cake eaters. It is taken from the form of cigarettes, which retail at about 25 cents apiece. They are sold freely in various parts of the city. Its effect, as you say, is much like alcohol at least to the observer, yet is very different to the addict. The subconscious senses are aroused, and that's the third article we've read so far that has the word aroused. (laughs) The subconscious senses are aroused and register things which really exist, but which are not observed by a normal person. However, you are mistaken in thinking that the drug is habit-forming or that it renders its victims a public nuisance. On the very contrary, it arouses no physical cravings. It is, however, usually continuously used by those who start it. The victims first succumb to the following reactions while under the influence. Stimulation of impulses, hysteria, apparent locomotive ataxia, and sometimes various delusions. However, only real hashish addicts are dangerous. The modern muggles, or muta addict, is at times very harmless. They mostly laugh inordinately. They are sometimes annoyingly ostentatious to the opposite sex. Jazz works them into a frenzy of joy. And he is quite the imbecile in his words and actions, yet he is not dangerous. But forgive me for writing such a long letter on the subject, but I have been studying it for now some time, and have no aid to actual observations of the information on Cannabis Indica in the medical dictionaries. Your article, which is the first I've ever seen on the subject, moved me to write to you. Eighty years ago, someone was talking about that.
0: It didn't seem to have the hysteria, most. No, no, this was like a pro. It was kind of, uh, just like, yeah, they're harmless. They're kind of goofy and act dumb, but
1: yeah, yeah, they like jazz. <laughs> you know? So well, that is kind of where these, uh, newspapers lead us. Obviously, there's so much more to be in there in the paper. You just got to go look, you know, and, and you come across, uh, it, it, what these articles kind of show us is that there is a humorous side to people, you know, going back. 1787 that one article that poem people not really supposed to take the news seriously all the time this is a way of sharing how Pittsburgh and Pittsburghers in the past have really um, kind of shared their own vision their own stories and uh, and really want to make us laugh now in the future you know it's amazing that we have the technology now to find all this information so quick and so easy but I, I encourage you all to go out there and look
0: I think these are the same kind of stories that you see now on TV Mm. Dog eats only money. Or it's called clickbait. Clickbait, yeah. Yeah, clickbait. Yeah. You
1: know, we got clickbait here from uh, 1787 Clickbait. <laughs> I was going
2: to say, and there's John looking through all these old newspapers, and he, he's a sucker for it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He prints it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd save it. i laminate him. <laughs> Rick, thank you. Hey, thank you guys. That was fun.
0: You want to plug anything?
2: Well, I mean, my my next show is going to be another Kennywood show. I think I I'll do Kennywood shows for the rest of my life, you know, because. uh we had to put all this stuff in the computer, and I said, well, it's in there. Let's do one more, because I could tell there was enough material. May 2nd, uh, in the year 2019, it'll be the premiere of my third Kennywood program. I did Kennywood Memories in 1988, and then in early this year in 2019, I released one called uh, That Kennywood Summer, all footage shot in 1988, and same for this show. Wow. which will be called uh, Don't Stand Up.
0: What are the next two after that? Please? After
2: that, I think I'm going to do one uh, called My Interview with Fred, about a long interview I did with Fred Rogers in 1988, parts of which have been used by everybody else who's done a Fred Rogers show since. <laughs> right. um, but it'll be fun to, like, sort of, you know, show again. What he looked like that day and everything and sort of concentrate on the interview. Then I would do a show called My Seven Weeks in McGee about uh, what I did while I was in the hospital. All the wonderful things that people brought me. <laughs> so it's really great.
0: Well, thanks again for coming in, Rick.
2: Hey,
1: thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. We end every show uh, with a saying that you might be familiar with, and that is uh, you join me with saying it. That's, That's it for Pitt.